Uh, welcome to Urban Grace Church. Uh, my name is Trev, and uh, I'm super glad that you're here. Uh, it's really spread out this morning. This is kind of a weird deal. It's like a kind of a shotgun spread this morning. So um, you'll just have to sing louder and listen more carefully, I guess. Um, we're excited that you're here this morning to hear uh, the good news of Jesus Christ. We sang about him earlier. And before we kind of get into it, I just want you to know what we're about as a church. Uh, we're about Jesus. That's one word. Uh, that's why we kind of always put gospel in, in everything. We're in a series on Nehemiah, but we're in a series on what does the gospel have to do with Nehemiah and what does the book of Nehemiah have to do with our uh, proclamation of the gospel here in Calgary. And we believe that Jesus has asked us to bring grace to this city. That means that we do it in all kinds of ways, but probably primarily we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ that he died on a Roman cross, that he rose again, and he lives forever. And he lives right now, presently, on the throne in heaven, waiting to take us back with him. That's kind of the full, compact story of, of in some ways, what the gospel is. He had to die because we are sinners and we needed a Savior. And so if you want to know, in short form, what we are about as a church, that's all we are really about at the very simplest level. And so if you uh, want to know more about that, uh, there will be people that you can talk to about that. You can fill in one of those Connect cards. You see them uh, on the back. Perhaps you got one on your way in. Uh, we'd love to know more about whether you're interested in that or not, or connecting in other ways to our church. If you're not new to Jesus but are new to our church and you'd like to see what we're about and know more about our mission, there's ways that you can connect there. And let me also say that we do basically two things. I used to really think think it was really innovative the way we were doing these two things. And then I realized we actually don't have a building or an office anywhere and we couldn't do it any other way. So it's not that innovative. Um, but I think it's really reproducible and it works. And this is how we describe it. We do big and we do small. This is what we would call the big. This is where we gather. This is where we introduce you to the mission of Jesus Christ that he has called us to as participants participation in the city. This is where we sing together. Um, it's good that we sing together here because that would be so weird to have that band in your house, wouldn't it? Yeah, it'd be, you got to laugh because that's really weird. That would be crazy and you'd probably lose all your neighbors. So that's why we, we do that at the big here. We gather together and we sing about Jesus. We hear the word of God preached. I think it's very important, not just that we hear a certain style of preaching, but that we hear the gospel over and over again and that we sit and listen. And really, in our big, we, we, do, we, we order our service so that the first part of the service is really a lot of gospel proclamation to you. And then there's time for you to respond. And that's why we take our offering at the end, because we believe that the giving of your money to this mission is an act of worship. It's not really about fundraising. It's about worship. And so is the Lord's table. This is an act of worship. We don't do this to get this out of the way so we can get to the more fun stuff of being a Christian. This is what being a Christian is all about right here. This Lord's table, this celebration of, of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We just sang about it. You're going to participate in it after, and then we're going to sing. So there's ways that we respond. So that's what we do at the big. It's, it's, it's kind of hard to do that anywhere else, really, um, in that combination. So that's our big, but we also have our small. We know that you can't simply grow as a Christian or as a follower, or disciple of Jesus Christ, if this is really the only place you ever know about Jesus Christ or apply the gospel to your life. For any of you who have tried it, you know this is true, right? You know that it's really difficult to grow as a Christian if you only give Jesus basically an hour and a half on Sunday mornings. It can't be done. 
We don't believe it can be done either. And that's why we have the small. We call them city groups because they're designed to serve and to bless the city. So in those groups, we have four of them right now. They're really geographic. We're trying to get it geographical so that you begin to serve in your neighborhood or close to your neighborhood or at least friends in a neighborhood in particular. And so we have four different geographical locations. Three of them are in the urban core. One is in the suburbs, but all of them are directed towards serving and blessing the city in small mobile units. Kind of like the Navy SEALs of an army, right? There's the army or the Navy, and then there's the Navy SEALs. It's like the specialized mobile group. For those of you who have no idea, military, what I'm talking about, just hang in there with me. But it's, it's mobile so they can move and they can bless in particular ways that a large group of us could not. I don't know if you've ever tried to organize 75 people. Anyone? What's that like? A lot of fun? Is it any easier than organizing like 12 people? No, it's a lot harder. That's why we do the small. So if you are not connected in that way and you would like to grow as a Christian, you would like to join the mission of Jesus Christ, we would encourage you. There's really only one option for that at our church, and that is in the small. Uh, so get connected that way through one of those connect cards um, and fill those out. And you can drop those in the, in the box or in the, sorry, in the offering plate slash salad bowls on the way out. Okay, they're black salad bowls to like cool them up, but they're still salad bowls. Let's be honest. Um, the, the, a couple of announcements beyond that, what I'll say is, uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but it's a big time of the year for most Christians. They celebrate Easter. Um, we're actually going to try and change that. Something happened yesterday in a conversation that someone said, you know, Easter is actually the description that, that pagans have given to just this whole season of celebrating. And he said, really, it's Resurrection Sunday. And I thought, that's great. That's beautiful. So we're going to start calling it Resurrection Sunday around here. You would know it as Easter Sunday. We're going to call it Resurrection on Sunday. And this is the day which we should have a, a, some liveliness here. So you're, this is like forced enthusiasm on you, okay? Because Jesus is alive. Amen. Yeah. You responded like the Oilers won the Stanley Cup there. Jesus is alive. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we love that here, and we want to celebrate that. So Jesus rose from the dead, and we're going to have a Sunday where we're going to have a baptism, so people are going to come out of the water like Jesus came out of the grave. Amen? This is, this is why Easter, sorry, Resurrection Sunday is such a great time to do this. So if you've never been baptized, you don't even know what I'm talking about, uh, let me describe it like this. Baptism is a lot like this. This would be a family meal, but baptism is really like a marriage ceremony where you seriously say to all of the church, I love Jesus Christ. I am a sinner. He died for me, and I want to identify with him and his church on mission. If you could say that about yourself and you have not been baptized, you have all the information you need to be baptized. We don't have classes here because we preach the gospel every week for crying out loud. If you can't pick it up by coming here in the week, a baptism class certainly is going to help all that much. That's all that you needed. In the early church, what happened is people preached the gospel and then they said, what should we do? And they said, repent and be baptized. Tell Jesus you're a sinner and you want your life changed by him and get in the water and get wet. That was it. And then you began your journey of discipleship. So if that makes sense to you, you've never been baptized You've been afraid of it for some reason. Please, like, fill out a Connect card and say, I would like to be baptized on Resurrection Sunday. We actually have, believe it or not, we have permission to do this in the theater. 
um, which is amazing because this theater is completely made of wood. So pray that Jesus keeps our tub without any leaks so that we can stay having church here in the theater. Um, but if that interests you, uh, please let me know. We'd love to have you get baptized on Sunday. Lastly, I will say in two, two weeks, week and a half, week, it's a week from this past Friday, I think, um, we're having the third third uh, home-cooked music concert. This is uh, one of the ways in which we are serving and blessing the city of Calgary. we got two bands. Uh, one is a solo electronic act. All the solo electronic acts in the house say, eh? No? Yeah! I'm kind of an electronic nerd that way, so I, I'm excited about that. Bonaventure James. And then Flow Shine, which is an alternative funk pop. Okay, so if either of those don't make any sense to you, why don't you come anyways, okay? We want, we'd love to see everyone from Urban Grace show up to this to serve and bless the bands in our city because you may not agree with this, but maybe one of those bands could be our next band up here. You never know, right? Jesus has done crazier things in this world. Um, so maybe it's like a preview as to what our church is going to sound like in a couple years. So we'd love for you to show up. Doors open at 7.30, and the bands start at 8. So come get a seat. Um, it's a great show. It's a family show. At least we're trying to make it a family show. So um, you can bring your kids. My kids love it, and uh, love to see you there. Okay, all the announcements out of the way, but important. Uh, Let me pray, and then let's get into the text. Jesus, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you for uh, new life. We, We thank you for changed hearts. We ask Jesus today that you would be with us and you would fill us this morning. Uh, Fill us with understanding for wisdom that I can proclaim your word properly and carefully and helpfully. And I pray for all of our hearts that we would open our hearts and we would have them opened by you to the truth of the gospel today. That the gospel would not just sound like information to us, but it would sound like great news to us, which it is. So I pray that for all of us, Jesus. I pray we would see your work, Jesus, in the book of Nehemiah and that you would bless us with that. We ask this on the basis of that you said we should and we can and that you want to do this. You want to bless us with your Holy Spirit. You actually said that. I will give good gifts to those who want them. And I know this is a good gift. I know it's an important gift to your church, so we're asking for it today, Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen. Well, if you're new, we're in chapter 5. Let me quickly uh, talk about what our series is about. You see some cinder blocks here. That's our impression of what the walls would look like in Jerusalem. I'm not sure they were gray, but they were something along these lines. Uh, They didn't have the gospel signs, so we added that in. But we believe that the rebuilding of the walls in Jerusalem, in in, in the project that Nehemiah is involved in, is very similar to our building project here of building a great church and actually building a great city. Um, We believe that lots of different churches that proclaim the gospel are needed in order to build a great city. So we're not just about building a great church. Everyone I know I've ever talked to that's ever been a Christian wants to go to a great church. Anyone not want to go to a great church? Anyone walk up to you and go, man, I'm just kind of hoping for something mediocre that's really boring and that's hard to go to week after week. I don't know anyone like that. 
In fact, I know the opposite. Everyone I know that's a Christian and wants to grow says, I want to go to a church that I'm proud of and that I love. And that's what we're about. We're about building a great church, not for our sake, but for the sake of those who do not yet know Jesus. This is actually very similar to this rebuilding project in Nehemiah. That Nehemiah, his is, uh, let me just give you some very quick background. He's, he's, a, he's a Jew who's working a Persian job. Okay, that's the neighboring country, and they weren't that much of an enemy, actually. But this Jew had this great high-paying job in a corner office. He was the cupbearer to the king. And somehow, Jesus, through his spirit, although Nehemiah didn't know it at the time, didn't know that's who it was, he knew him as God, we know him as Jesus and his Holy Spirit, he impressed Nehemiah with new, old news in a very new way, and his heart snapped in two and broke for the city of Jerusalem. And he left his high-paying corner office Persian job so that he could travel back to the, the capital city of Jerusalem and rebuild the city walls. Now, already what had happened there is the temple had been rebuilt, but as anyone in the ancient Near East would know, you cannot build the temple a place of worship without building in defense practices around it. So the, the city walls needed to be rebuilt in order to protect the glory and the holiness of God, because for every Jew, that's what that temple represented. It represented the actual physical presence of God. And they wanted that so bad, and they hadn't had that for 141 years or whatever, a 90 years or so until the temple was built. And so they needed to protect that. And, and Nehemiah's heart broke, and he, he said, I, I must go back. I must leave this great high-paying job, go back to my hometown, or what would be considered my hometown and I need to get involved in rebuilding the walls. And he prayed and he fasted and he was terrified and he showed great courage. And he went back and he asked the king. He was bold enough to ask the king, not before he didn't pray his face off before the Lord, but he went back and he said, King, not only do I want to rebuild the city walls, I want you to pay for it. And this king did not love God. He did not worship God, but he liked Nehemiah. And God showed favor to Nehemiah in that Persian king. And the king, actually Persian king, gave him all the resources that he needed. And then Nehemiah went back to his hometown, Jerusalem, to rebuild the city walls. And he got people involved. He got them fired up. It's kind of like church planting. Actually, it's almost exactly like church planting, but the names have been changed. That's how we're choosing to view this. But along that way, as soon as he began to rally the troops and, and, and remind them of, of what God was doing, opposition came. And that's always happens, right? Have you ever tried to do something really aggressive in your company? And the other employees are like, quit making me look so bad. And the boss is like, whoa, 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 settle down. I don't want you that aggressive. Well, this is exactly what happened in Nehemiah. He had some, they, they would have been almost Jews, but not really. Actually, they would have been Samaritans. And we know later on in the New Testament, there's this big fight between Samaritans and Jews. I don't know if you noticed that in the New Testament, if you've ever read it. That's why when Jesus heals a Samaritan woman, he's literally healing the enemy, according to all Jews. And that's why when he comes back and he's talking to a Samaritan woman outside of the city, his disciples are like, Jesus, this really crosses way too many borders that we're comfortable with. They, they didn't like each other. And this opposition in Nehemiah comes from people that were from Samaria, basically. So they had a lot of the Jewish religion. They had a lot of that in their blood, but they were, they were trying to derail this thing. And so there was opposition. And, and Nehemiah said, okay, 
We're going to have to keep building the wall. That's going to be our, 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 our line of defense. We're going to pray our faces off, and we're going to keep building the wall. That's how we're going to defend. So we're going to build. And he had the, the workers literally have a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. And that's important for us as a church to be reminded that as we build a church in this city to help make this city great, we're going to have to learn how to defend it. And there's always going to be opposition to this. And it's, most of it's going to come from within us personally because we are really born into our sinful nature and we're going to have to fight this. And that's exactly what we see in today's text. That's exactly what we see. We see that the opposition isn't really coming from the outside. It's not coming from um, the Samaritans anymore. And it will come again, by the way. But really what's happening is there's something that's going on within the context of the Jewish community that's really, if it's not dealt with, is going to derail everything. This is very similar to the, the stuff that, you know, this, this is where this phrase is, uh, comes, you know, uh, we have seen the enemy and the enemy is us. That, that's very applicable to our passage today. That really the, the, the real threat to the rebuilding project is not coming from the Samaritans. It's not coming from difficulties outside. It's not coming from, you know, other armies and other countries. It's coming from within the Jewish camp and it's sin. And if this sin is not dealt with, this will take down the whole rebuilding project. And so let's take a look at this. Well, we see what's the real problem here. Well, I've, I've named the first point. It's, it's all about greed. It's all about greed. That's verses 1 to 5. It says, Now there arose a great outcry of the people of their wives against their Jewish brothers. So it's not like this is outside. right? They're like people within your church. That's, that's what it would be similar doing. Or, or people from another church in your town, that's what it would be like. That would be the equivalent. And they said, what's going on? What's going on here? Nehemiah hears this cry. He's trying to rally the troops. He says, you know, build and defend. Put the trowel in one hand and the sword in the other. And, they, and then the people are like, you know what, Nehemiah, we just got to say it out loud here. We're having trouble with some people. We're having trouble with some people. And essentially, there's, there's, there's three problems here. In order to rebuild the wall, these people did not simply do this in their spare time. Like, they didn't do a nine-to-five job and then, like, what are you doing later? Oh, I'm going to put in a piece of the wall. What are you doing? It wasn't like that. It was like people literally set their entire lifestyle. They set their farmland aside, and they rebuilt for two straight months. I mean, that's an amazing thing, isn't it? Can you imagine if I said to you, we're going to build a church and I want all of you to quit your jobs for two months or at least tell your boss to put them on hold for two months and tell them that you need a job when you come back. I mean, this is an amazing thing that's happened, but that's exactly what these people do. They set their, that's an agricultural um, culture. And so they set aside all of their land for a season so that they can, uh, they, they can go and they can rebuild because they believe so much in this rebuilding process. But here's the problem. It's expensive to build a wall because if you do that, you still have to feed your family. Have you noticed this? <laughs> that when you don't work, you still need to eat? Anyone not notice this? Right? It's kind of the simple basic facts of life. If you have a family that this gets actually quite difficult and complicated. It's not real simple as soon as you have dependence. And so 
generally, like the, the women weren't asked to do the heavy labor of the work, lift, lift the heavy stones, and so the, the men were building the wall. That's probably some sort of Twitter I'm just getting as we talk, an encouragement. Um, they, were building, they were building the wall, and the, the wives and the children are back waiting. They're waiting to hear how they're going to get provided for. This is an issue. Secondly, farm, uh, they, they mortgage their fields in order to pay for grain. So think about this for a second. So they're called to rebuild the wall. They're setting aside. So in order to pay for the grain for their children and their families while they build, they've mortgaged their, their, their fields. They've borrowed money to do this. Okay? Then thirdly, if they can't pay those things back, what they've had to do is sell their own children into slavery. Now, this sounds really, really strange. Are their daughters into marriage or slavery? Okay, some of you are like, whoa, you lost me at selling into slavery. But this is actually what happened in the ancient Near East. If you couldn't pay your debt, so if you couldn't pay your visa bill, they didn't, they didn't make you go through bankruptcy. They're like, okay, how many kids do you have? We'll take two until you've paid off this debt. Can you imagine if Visa still used that practice today? I mean, this would be, this would be terrible, right? Some of, some of you moms who are at home with the four-year-olds are like, actually, it wouldn't be that bad. I'm kidding. I have a four-year-old. But this is, this is what was happening, just to, just to pay off this debt. Now, you would think this maybe is normal from the Persians, but it's not coming from the Persians, the Persians aren't doing this. They're not imposing this upon the Jewish people. What's happening is it? it's church people that are doing this. They're like, yeah, you owe me big time. Now, can you imagine? Can you imagine if in order to get me to full time, some of you took out loans from other people in our church, and then they're basically said, because you can't pay it, you're going to work for me until you can pay it off you imagine if that was going on in our church? I mean, first of all, I'm pretty sure that the government would have something to say about it. But can you imagine what this would do to the morale of the people? Like, are you at all surprised that when you look in the text, there arose a great cry? Like, hey, Nehemiah, love this wall building thing, but just to let you know, just so you know, that guy over there basically has taken advantage of me. What happens to Nehemiah? Nehemiah gets angry. And we'll get into that. But it's interesting what's happening here. And I just want to take a pause and kind of apply this to our life and and say, you know, it's interesting that as Nehemiah is calling people to build the wall and everyone to play their part, that there are people that have compartmentalized their life to the point where they don't think their business activities have anything to do with the wall building, but they do. They have a direct correlation with how this wall is built. If this isn't dealt with in a serious way, no wall ever gets built. And nobody wins, by the way. It doesn't help at all to proclaim this great sovereign God and this great generous God when people within the church are extremely greedy. Okay, this, this, is, this does not help anyone at all. I was explaining this in brief to a friend this morning, and what I said for this is, we could probably fundraise for Urban Grace Church. 
It's taken almost two years, and thanks to many people's generosity in this church, many, many of you are very generous with your time and your money and everything that you have, all of your resources. We could raise funds in a way that perhaps is somewhat shady. Like, let's, let's hold a lottery, and for all those with gambling addictions, let's key on them, and let's raise thousands of dollars. By the way, we could do that. There's no legal problem with that. Maybe there is. Uh, if there's any lawyers in here, you're going to come after me afterwards. But we, we, we did this for our, our school. Right? That's, that's the way a lot of funds are raised in the school. They're preyed kind of upon those with, well, they don't ask them if you have a gambling addiction, but essentially it's all the lotteries within Alberta. That's kind of like if you're going to do a lottery, you have to take so much. And, and so schools and, and people fundraise this way. And you know what happens is it really, in some ways, keys in on those who have addictive gambling problems and says, well, you're going to pay for our schools. Yeah, exactly. Good response. I mean, does anyone kind of see that this may not be that great of a deal long term? So let me get this straight. So we could raise funds for our schools to help provide students that go to college and learn how to deal with those who have gambling addictions with the funds raised through lotteries. Does anyone see like the missing pieces in this? I mean, I'm I'm actually not against gambling or lotteries in the way that you might think. I think the real problem is, is some of these issues aren't dealt with or thought through. And so there's the guys and the girls at the back that go, ah, Nehemiah, do you see what we're doing here? Do you see what's actually happening? Can I just explain? This might not be a win for everyone. We might build a wall and all of us die from starvation. And I think it's a, it's a strong reminder that, that some of you are part of urban grace and you don't think your personal holiness has anything to do with this rebuilding project. You're like some of these Jews, actually. You come to church on Sunday, you're involved in a city group, you apply the gospel, but at work, you're kind of a crook. You abuse those underneath you. You take advantage of your company whenever you possibly can. You show up late, you leave early. Tell your friends, you cutting corners in your personal work, in your life that you live throughout the life in order to help with urban grace grow a church is not a win for us. In every way, shape, and form, I think it's like we as a church are not going to build a great church that builds a great city on the backs of the businesses in this city. That will not win people to the gospel. I'm actually tired. I'm actually tired of this. This drives me bananas. When I know a Christian businessman or woman in a community, and I hear someone else have to deal with that Christian businessman or woman in the community, and they say, I hate dealing with those people. They're selfish. They're greedy. They treat me poorly. And then they go to church on Sunday. I don't want anything to do with that. I don't know your business dealings. This is why it's safe for me to say this. I'm glad we didn't hand out eggs at the beginning of this service because I know a couple of you would throw them at me. I don't, I don't actually know how you deal with your businesses. 
I just know that we have a tendency to compartmentalize and be like these Jews that think, oh, there's nothing wrong with this. I'm making, I'm giving to the church. Some of you are giving money to the church that you're not earning properly. That, my friends, is not a win. That, my friends, is not something that pleases God. If you give all your money to the church, but you completely neglect the needs of your neighbors next to you that Jesus has put you next to, and your friends, this is not success at Urban Grace. This is not something we need to be proud of. Right? Now, this is the harsh part of the text. Don't you agree? Some of you feel very condemned right now. I didn't do that. That was the Holy Spirit saying, I think you need to do some correcting in the way you think about this. And I have learned personally that how I work, not even what I say at work, is what really matters. I used to work construction, blue-collar construction. I loved it. I mean, for me, any time you can swing a 20 or a two-pound object and smash things is a great job, right? That's framing in a nutshell, right? It's, it's, you know, three inches out, just whack that thing into place. I mean, that's a great job for me. The smell of wood outside, great, awesome. But I noticed very quickly that it didn't matter what I said to my boss. I was trying to win him to Christ, and he's like, you just need to shut up and build. Like, we're going to talk after, don't worry. And I realized that it wasn't just what I said at work. It was, I didn't, it, I, he knew I was a Christian. He's like, honestly, Trev, you're a great worker. I love you. You just need to keep your trap shut a little more often and work more often. And something went on. I was like, the way I work actually matters to this guy. I don't win his heart. I don't win his respect through what I say I believe about Jesus. I win his respect through him knowing I believe in Jesus and working my face off. And I think this is a, this is a good corrective for us. That as we, as we build, do not... Forget that sin and disobedience against God in the dark is still sin and disobedience. Some of you don't think this. No one sees it here at church that it's not going to have much of an effect on what God's going to do at Urban Grace. Sometimes I just go, well, we're, we're struggling here. I bet you it's because people just refuse to deal with sin. Because God's like, I want to bless you, but you don't understand I'm not just interested in a big, great church. I'm actually interested in your soul and whether or not you actually believe the gospel applies to all these situations. And so the greed is dealt with. Now, we're going we're gonna to deal with this. That's, it's motivated really out of this greed. And so here's what Nehemiah does. He begins the process of reform. I didn't have another good word for it. But he begins this process of reform. And we start to see this in verse 6. He gets, I was very angry. You have me at very angry. I mean, this guy means business. What I love is you see this kind, gentle, compassionate heart of Nehemiah, that, but that when things really bother him, he gets angry. Now, some of you right there are like, whoa, 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 whoa. I thought being a Christian meant you never got angry. I don't know where you heard that, but you certainly couldn't have read any of your Bible. Have you noticed how often people get angry? Have you noticed that God actually gets angry? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm actually thankful because people know so, knew so well that God got angry that, that they had to write down, God is slow to anger. 
That's actually one of his qualities. He's slow to anger, thankfully for you and me, right? <laughs> I am not slow to anger, by the way. And if you, if you are judging me right now, have some kids. <laughs> you will find that you are not slow to anger, okay? There is nothing in this world that will quicken you to anger, like children that either don't ignore you or are just annoying, I mean, it's, I love my kids dearly, but man, alive. I mean, it just rears up. It's like quick to anger. I, I, I didn't even think I had any temper issues. I thought it was all dealt with. And then I had two little girls. And I'm like, oh, I got, I got some growing to do here. I'm pretty quick to anger. They lie to me, to my face. They steal my keys and put them in their toy box. They wreck my headphones. They take those little buds off the ear headphones and, like, chew on them. They take your pens and bash the tip of it so that it's unwritable. But God's not like this. He is not quick to anger, friends. That's why when you sin, he's not ready to pounce on you like you think he is. That's why when you just felt that conviction about dealing with your sin, he's not going to come after you and and steal your job from you and make you homeless in one day. He's not that kind of a God. He's slow to anger. He sent preachers so that you would have the chance to repent and grow. And Nehemiah gets very angry. And I want to remind you, like, getting angry is not holy in and of itself. And there's lots of anger that's very, very unholy. I do lots of unholy anger. Anyone out there like me? Lots of unholy anger. Like someone cuts you off in traffic. Like someone goes slow in traffic. Like someone goes fast in traffic. Why is it always traffic related? Anyways, have you noticed how angry people are in this city once they get into a vehicle? It's like there's a little button that says angry now. It's amazing to me how angry people get and they yell and scream at you through the their car. Right there, we're, that's not holy anger most of the time. Rarely is it holy anger. But there is such a thing as holy anger. We see examples of it in Nehemiah. Notice what he does. He thinks first, <laughs> so he gets angry, and then he's like, "Okay, I got to get, I got to go journal." So he's angry. And he's like, "I got to go journal. Let's uh, let's figure this out." No, I'm really angry, and I have reasons to, to be angry. I think this is a good corrective. So he gets angry and there's a holy anger here. Why is he angry? Why is he angry, friends? Because he sees sin not dealt with properly. And this is not a knowledge problem. This is not, um, I didn't know that problem. Because when he approaches them, they're like, yeah, nothing to say. Jesus got very angry. He got angry at when he walked into the temple. That's a very famous... I remember clearly hearing a preacher preach on this. It's like, well, Jesus got angry, but you shouldn't. I, I, I don't buy that. But Jesus' anger is always holy anger. And what was his anger directed towards? Well, Jesus built the temple for God's presence. And these people had come in and turned it into a profit-making sort of business. Now, I used to hear that story um, 
kind of taken out of context, which means you can't sell anything in a church building, which is like crazy, crazy uh, interpretation skills that you would actually arrive at that. But, but there is some truth in some sense that these people were keying in on making a profit off of people. So it was required for every Jew to sacrifice, and many of them would come from a long way away. And rather than bringing a perfect lamb, there would be some people that would be close by in Jerusalem. It's kind of like the convenience store idea, right? You ever walked into a convenience store and went like, what, Three fifty-nine for a box of nerds? Are you kidding me? If you go into Walmart, and, and, and the people behind are like, then go to Walmart. You know, why do they charge so much? Because it's a convenience Right? They prey on your convenience. They would never sell anything otherwise. But it's like rather than go to Walmart or go to Superstore or go to Safeway, you just go to the local convenience store, get your milk at $8 a gallon or $8 for four liters, sorry. And that's what Jesus had a problem with is there are people that were lined up and being like, <laughs> you have to sacrifice if you want your sins forgiven. Why don't you buy my like 300% you know, marked up lamb or pigeon. And Jesus said, that's ridiculous. I designed the temple so people could come closer to me, and you're making it as hard as possible for poor people to get close to me. And so he walks in. We have this phrase now when we're angry in, in some of our leaders, we say we're flipping tables because it, we have a verse for it. <laughs> Jesus comes in, he overturns tables. We change it to flip our paraphrase. Right? He comes in, he's like, it's not what I designed the church to be. It's not what I designed the temple to be. What was the problem? Exactly the same in Nehemiah, by the way. Greed. These people were hungry for money and they prayed in on something. And Jesus is like, this is not a win for us, for our team. Yes, these people sacrifice and gain guilt-free lives from the sacrifice. But I'm not happy. Nehemiah has very similar anger. And he says, this is crazy. We're trying to get this wall building done and you're, you're, you're taking advantage of your own people. What's wrong with you? Don't you have any idea? And then he, then he pulls out all these kind of weird things that we don't know. And he's like, okay, um, the fold in the garment, and it takes like these little, it's like pocket lint, okay? Imagine like you're wearing a toga. Okay, some of you don't imagine you're wearing a toga. Imagine someone else is wearing a toga, okay? And you have these like pockets, the folds in your garment where you, you'd store things. Like my four-year-old would store my keys there in her pockets, right? And you pull them out like this and go, I hope God does this to you. If you don't make a correction, you're like the lint. I hope that God just goes, get this out of here. That's pretty strong words, hey? <laughs> you have to know you have righteous, holy anger to do that. I'm not saying that you go home and tomorrow morning you do this to your boss. If you don't start doing corrective, <laughs> don't do that. That's a command. But Nehemiah carefully thinks through his response. He prays about it. So if you get angry, and you know what? Something should make you angry, friends. And if you want to be part of building a great city, you're going to get angry. Here's what you should be angry about. Last night, we served people from in from the cold. 
You should be angry that the rent is too high for some families here, that they cannot get a down payment in time from a job. That should frustrate you. That should make tears well up in your eyes and go, this has got to stop. Some of you are in positions to help with this. You're in real estate. You own buildings. You're in, you know this stuff. And you're just piggyback. You're making the wealth off the backs of people. And you need to carefully think through, if I want to be part of rebuilding this city and making this a great city, then we've got to somehow make it accessible for people to live. You know, when you walk down the street and you see an older teenager or something like that push over a little girl or a grandma, this should bother you. You should get angry at that. You shouldn't always punch that person in the face. That's true. You should go home and maybe journal about it sometimes. But it should make you angry. Do you know why it should make you angry? Because it's unjust. And you and I are made in the image of God, and we still have that image of God in us, that that's how God feels toward our sin. He got angry. He said, I've got to deal with this sin. That's why he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross. Not just because he loved you, but because he said, sin makes me mad. Someone's going to get punished. But here's the great news of the gospel. He said, I'm not going to punish you. I'm going to punish my son. He's going to take the spanking. He's going to take the punishment. He's going to take the wrath of God on his shoulders once and for all. So every time God gets mad at sin, he goes, yeah, but I punished my own son for this. And he can look upon you with grace. I mean, can we not say amen to that? Thank you. It's a very white amen right there. But you should get angry. And you shouldn't feel bad about being angry. But you need to remember that, A, God is slow to anger. You should remember that God vindicates. I told this story a couple weeks ago about my own daughter. We named her Dinah. Leslie loved the name. Dinah, I really, really love the meaning. God vindicates. God's the one that pays back. Because I need to remember this all the time. Because I get uh, cut off in traffic too, by the way. People, people steal stuff from me too. People do things that I don't really care for. People treat me poorly and I get upset. And it's not always righteous anger. And so we need to follow Nehemiah's example, carefully think through, is this anger a holy anger? Is this an anger that's, that's derived out of this injustice? Or is this, is this an anger that, that simply is just like, I'm bothered and inconvenienced by this? And so then thirdly, Nehemiah makes changes. He's like, he calls a big tribunal. We call it a town hall meeting. We may even call it a church service. Kind of like a church disciplinary service where you bring everyone together and you say, these people are being disciplined by the church. And you make a a public statement about this because people simply won't repent. And so Nehemiah basically says, okay, all you guys who are taking advantage, I want you to come up on stage. 
Hold your rotten tomatoes for later. We'll see if these guys repent. (laughs) I mean, the courage in Nehemiah is unbelievable. He says, okay, guys, what do you got to say? They're like, we got nothing. He's like, okay, you're going to pay them back? Yeah. You're going to not do it again? Yeah. Okay. No tomatoes today. No rotten eggs. And they go up and do it. And Nehemiah makes changes. Now, if Nehemiah was in today's, you know what he'd do probably, or or you know what most of you and I would do? We'd tweet this. We'd Facebook this. We'd write a blog. All these terrible people. Nehemiah doesn't do this. He looks at them straight, head on, and he says, you're going to make a change. You're going to deal with this. This is sinful. This is not a win for us. And he has the courage to look someone in the eye and say, you are not, you're not obedient to God. You are disobedient to God, and you need to make a change. I think, I, I don't know if you're challenged by this text. I'm extremely challenged by this text to just carefully think through everything that I'm doing in my life. Not because I don't believe God is a graceful God, but because I think part of his grace is he calls people out to repentance and says, you got your chance to repent. But mark my words, you will reap what you sow, friends. You ignore some of these things. You may get away with it for 10, 20, 30 years. Eventually, this is going to catch up with you and me. And we have seen churches everywhere that have crumbled over financial issues, poor financial issues, wrong sexual sin that's not dealt with properly, conflict that's not dealt with in a biblical way. Some of you have been part of a church that is going down because of one of those issues. Because it's not hit head on. I do not want Urban Grace to be one of those churches. I want us to take this seriously. That as seriously as we take God's grace and God's, God's mercy toward us is also how serious we take God's holiness towards us. And how we are not holy. And we need that Savior. And we are not called to abuse that grace, but reflect that grace. And so Nehemiah deals with this greed. And he says, this is the problem. You're greedy. You're not generous people. And God is a generous God. And so as we move to the last part here, this is what we see in Nehemiah. We see his great generosity. Now, some of you may read that text and go, oh, Nehemiah is bragging about how much he gives. Okay, let me give you some background to this, this last part of the text. Okay, so he, sh- he shakes out the pocket. He's like, okay, may God do that. And then he's like, moreover, I was the governor of Judah. So he became actually into leadership. So he moved from Persia and he moved into leadership as the governor of Judah on behalf of Persia, really, is, what, is what's happening. And he says, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. So governors, just like anybody in government position, has a right to take a salary from the government, right? That's not against the law in any way. But Nehemiah says, you know what? Because I'm trying to deal with greed here, I don't want to jeopardize how this could be misconstrued. So he is legally okay with withdrawing a salary from the people. And how do you get a salary from people? Well, you take taxes from people. This eventually gets really corrupt 
which is why in the New Testament, tax collectors are really the armpit of society. Okay, does this make sense? Because that's what they did. They would take taxes for Rome, but really they took like extra. They had the authority to basically take as much as they wanted to, and many of them also took advantage of this. This is why it's so countercultural and, and, and really crazy that Jesus would call a tax collector to be one of his disciples, one of these people that takes advantage of people that's greedy. This is why it's crazy. That's why we always have that little Zacchaeus story in our, in our Bibles, right? Most of us, if we've gone to church all our lives, we know this is a Sunday school story that's really like cute. But really, it's about Jesus' grace towards a tax collector. Same, same thing. And so what happens is Nehemiah says, I didn't take a salary. I didn't draw a salary. I could have, but I didn't. Because I didn't need it. And to do so would have been really to continue on being greedy, to continue this line. And so he understands this begins first with leadership. If you want the people underneath you to be generous, you cannot be greedy. You know this as an employer or as an employee, don't you? Does it not frustrate you like crazy when your boss asks you to come in early and stay late and he or she doesn't? doesn't work very well, does it? You get really ungrateful really fast. But if your, if your boss beats you to work and stays after you, when he asks you to do something extra, it seems a lot easier, doesn't it? And that's exactly what Nehemiah understands. He says, I'm not going to take a salary. Except here's the problem is that Nehemiah's in government position. And so being in government position, what Nehemiah has to do is he has to provide for any kind of government official that would come through. Persia was actually a, a, a strangely friendly country to a lot of different countries. And so um, kind of the Persian policy was you needed to be able to provide some frozen lasagnas in case a government official showed up. Okay, is this making sense? So it's like, hey... Any government official had free reign. You go to Nehemiah, he'll put you up for the night, and he'll feed you a frozen lasagna. He's required by law to have six or seven frozen choice lasagnas. And he's got to find a way to pay for that. Now, normally, you would think it not crazy for Nehemiah to take tax money to get this paid for. But Nehemiah actually said, I didn't take tax money, and I still provided for all the government officials that came through every day, six sheep and one ox. What is that? That's Nehemiah digging into his pockets and going, if I expect my people not to be greedy, I've got to be generous. Is this starting to kind of make sense to you guys? And this is how it works. Here's the, here's the big kicker, the big verse that I underlined, and maybe you should if you're an underliner. He said, even their servants lorded it over the people in verse 15, but I did not do so. Why? Someone shouted out, because of what? The fear of God. The fear of God. I'll translate this for us. Nehemiah cared more about what God asked him to do than what he could do by law. And he knew what he could do by law would not promote this idea of generosity. He has been begging these people to give of their own money, of their own time, of their own tithes and offerings. This is above and beyond anything that they're giving to the church, by the way. They're giving to the temple tax. 
Jews are by, by the, the Old Testament law required to give about 33% of their income per year. Aren't you glad we didn't institute that at Urban Grace? This is on top of that. These guys are probably giving almost half of their salary away to the work of God. And Nehemiah says, I can't possibly ask you to do that if I am not personally making some sacrifices. For 12 years, I never took a salary. Now, am I saying you don't take a salary and you work for free? That's not what I'm saying. Although if God calls you to that, I'm fine with that. (laughs) But this is the point. Nehemiah actually understands that God is generous. When the Bible uses the word fear of God, it doesn't mean always afraid of God. Sometimes it does. But truly this phrase, fear of God, means you are more interested in what God has for you than what you have for you or what anyone else has for you. And so Nehemiah says, God, if you're going to call me to do this, then I'll obey you. I don't care what it looks like or how much it costs me. And because Nehemiah knew that his God was generous, that's why he asked that at the very end. Verse 19, he doesn't say, like, bless me with travel mercies. He doesn't say, like, hopefully this will work out, make my life comfortable. He says, remember me, God, remember what I've done for you. Because he knows God is a gracious God and a generous God. He knows that when he asks God to be generous, he's not asking him to do something that he doesn't already not want to do. And friends, the truth is that's exactly what our God is like. We don't talk about money probably enough here, and and that's my fault, and I'm sorry about that. Some of you are like, that's why I come to this church, because you don't talk about money. (laughs) But Jesus talked about money a ton. Actually, 25% of the words Jesus said had to relate to money. Can you imagine if one of every four sermons was about money here at Urban Grace? Most of you wouldn't be here. But here's why Jesus talks so much about money. Because money, your money is where your heart is. That's not like a command and an instruction. That's actually true. And I've said this in a variety of ways before. But if I wanted to know what you were really about as a person, all I would have to really look is your budget. And I would find out what really mattered to you. You know this personally because you don't have any money. But then a great concert comes on and you have money. I don't have money to do that, but then something comes along that you really want to do, and you can all of a sudden find a way to make money, right? That's the way it is for me, friends. I'm no different. Like, I can't really afford that, but, oh, I can totally afford that. Because my wallet is tied so closely to where my heart is at that I literally can't be generous in my spirit if my wallet doesn't follow closely. And every time that Jesus convicts me of something, he says, well, what are you spending your money on? That'll explain a lot. I'll tell you really, in some ways, a very foolish story about where my heart can be at sometimes in my own greed and what Jesus is doing and convicting me. Last week, I had the privilege of taking a number of my good friends and leaders to Seattle to do leadership training. Well worth it. I think we did it very cost effective. I have no questions about it. So I had a certain amount of money set aside. Okay, This gets funny and embarrassing for me, by the way. Um, I had a certain amount of money that I, 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 was, I had set aside uh, for like my food and, and for any little extras. And so about uh, um, 
like we got back Monday night. And about Tuesday morning, I started kind of going through my, my expenses. Have you ever done that? And you're like, where, where did that money go? And I was spent awful fast. And I, was, I wrote it down, and I'm going through, and I'm like, man, I'm about $50 short of where my budget should be at. Where did that go? Where did that 50, what did I spend that $50 on? I could not figure this out for the life of me. And then it slowly started to make sense to me. Uh, my friend Simon said, boy, I'm really glad we were able to tip that waitress so much. And I was like, how much do we tip that waitress? And then the, he had said an amount. I'm like, man, we got some generous guys in our leadership group. That's awesome. And then the next day, um, or on the way home, I had asked Pete, um, who had, he had paid, he had paid in a different way. He was kind of collecting all the money for us. And he's like, yeah, there was, there was a $50 bill in there. <laughs> what had happened is I had accidentally put a, and this is why I can't stand American money, by the way. I'd put a 50 instead of a 20. You ever done that? It, it, here's the funny part of the story. And I'd actually taken five out, been like, oh, I'll give a $6 tip. Man, am I generous. I'll just take that $5 back for me. <laughs> 15 for you, five for me. That's awesome. What's crazy is Sunday morning, all day Sunday, Jesus said to me, I heard him two times in my spirit go, you should give $50 away today to these churches that you're attending. I'm like, Jesus, come on, seriously. I got to eat. Like, I got to have this money. What am I going to do if like something comes up? So I'm like, no. Later on in the day, same thing. You should give away that $50. I'm like, no way, seriously, no way. I kept, I kept counting, and I'm sure I had seen it there. Here's what's crazy. Jesus was like telling me on Sunday morning and afternoon, you should give away that $50, but secretly he had made me give it away the day before. <laughs> I mean, has Jesus ever just hit you over the head so hard that you're like, oh, my goodness. You guys must be laughing about this in heaven because this is just embarrassing now. And what I realized when that happened is that had a way tighter grip on my heart than I thought it did. What was the issue? Greed. Honestly, I had all the money I needed. I had everything that I needed. I had been very generously given to. And yet here I am. I don't think I had $50 in my wallet. I think that my wallet had $50 in me. I think it had a grip on my heart. And Jesus was like, I don't want that to grip your heart. I want you to be free from that. I want that not to matter. And so I'm going to give it away and you won't even know it. And I just felt like Jesus, Trev, I love you. I want to show you this because I want to show you there are still things in your heart too that you need to think through carefully. And this is the issue. And so yes, I think we, we need to talk about money here, but really I want to talk about our generous God and that we want to build a generous culture where we just as a people are generous in every way, not just with our money, but we are a church where money doesn't have our hearts. That's what's most important. I know that it's very probable that many, some of you have attended here for a long time and haven't given a single dollar. And I'm not worried about amounts giving, what I'm worried about is that money probably has your heart if you haven't given anything at all. And you've been part of Urban Grace for a long time. I don't know names. We, we have this discussion with our treasurer. I don't know names. 
I don't want to know amounts. I don't want to know any of that stuff because I don't want to try and supersede what the Holy Spirit does in your life. But I do want to say this. If you think you're getting away with it, you're not. Jesus has a way of rooting that out of your life. And he will do it one way or another. Truth is, Jesus doesn't need your money. He doesn't. He doesn't need any of your money. He can do all this without your money. In fact, a lot of this that we experience here, about a third of what we experience at Urban Grace is, comes from people that don't even go to our church. But I think even some of those who are, who are giving sacrificially to the mission, it's almost like we're piggybacking off them if we let them pay for all the mission while we just experience the goodness and grace of Jesus. Don't you think? Now, this is not a guilt trip. This is not fundraising. You know what? We're doing great financially. I'm full-time. I mean, what? I'm full, sorry, what? I'm full-time. We don't need your money, but I do think the people in Calgary do. And I would love for us to be a church that is constantly generous. Why? Because I want to be in a big church. No, I want to be in a great church just like you. But I want to be in a church where it's like, man, they have, they, what in the world? They just give and give and give and give and give and give. Why do you guys give so much money? And we can go, you know why? We got a God that gives and gives and gives and gives. He didn't just give like a lamb. He gave his own son to us. And then he, he gave us on top of his own son. He paid that price for us. And then on top of that, he gave us guilt-free lives. And then on top of that, he gave us community. And then on top of that, he gave us marriages and children. And on top of that, he gave us friendships. And on top of that, he gave us music. And on top of that, he gave us mission and purpose. And on top of that, he gave us eternity. We got a God that doesn't tithe 10% of his grace to us. We have a God that ties everything to us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God gives good gifts to his children. This is why we need to be a generous church. This is why. We don't monitor exactly how much you give, friends. We don't require it to be a part of urban grace at all. But what I think Nehemiah clearly lays out for us is, if we think for a second that we can proclaim a generous God by being a greedy church, we're wrong. And we need to repent. And lastly, I'll just say these three things. Plan for generosity. Some of you don't make any plans to do this, and so you'd like to be generous with your time and your money, but you don't make any plans My friend Nate said, you don't do this with the way you work out. Do you? Does anyone go like, oh, man, I'm going to lose 10 pounds this year. Well, what's your plan? Don't have one. I'm just going to walk and hope the 10 pounds go off. Nobody does that. What what do you do? You plan. I'm going to the gym. I'm getting up early. I'm not eating dinosaurs. Right? You plan. Friends, you've got to plan for generosity. You have to plan for generosity. It will not just naturally flow out of your life. In fact, the opposite will be true. You need to plan for this. If you want to be generous and you, you want to be generous with your time and your money and your gifts, you need to plan for it. That's why I often say repentance involves a plan, true repentance. 
So if you're going to repent today and say, I'm not a generous person, part of that repentance means you need to start making a plan for this. And honestly, some of you just need to start giving $5. Because your money, however little you have, has such a deep root in your... I've seen the poorest people have such the tightest grip on money that I've ever seen. And I've seen the richest people have such a loose grasp of their finances and generosity. I've seen both. So being poor doesn't mean you can't be generous. In fact, Jesus actually had a a story about this in the New Testament. He said, see that widow there? She gave like everything. And they're like, two pennies? That's it? The disciples were not impressed with her. But he says, no, no, no. She gave out of her heart. She has a generous heart. That money that she gave did not help the temple at all. But it was honoring to a generous God. And it was reflective of a generous God. And Jesus said, from now on, everyone will know her story that reads the Bible. She made the Bible. So you can make the Bible giving a dime. That's the moral of the story. No, it's not the moral of the story. Plan for it, friends. You need to plan for it. Secondly, prepare for inconvenience. If you think you can be generous and it not have an effect on your lifestyle, wrong. There's no way you can do that. You cannot expect that this will not inconvenience you. You can't just go to Starbucks all the time and be real generous. It's going to have an effect. You're going to have to have less coffees. You're going to have less, have less beer. You're going to have to go to less concerts. Yeah, I know. This is me being Nehemiah saying, correct this, friends. Figure it out in your life. Thirdly, worship God. Worship Jesus, not comfort. I think that's the number one idol in our city right now. Number one idol for in our city is not alcohol. The number one idol to me is not sex. It's comfort. People will do anything to be comfortable in this city. And you and I have this temptation in our country that we will worship comfort and we will, we will change things that are, that are wants and put them into needs. Right? Why do we do that? Because we worship comfort. We're going to sing, I think, One God today. It's one of the anthems. And we have to sing it a lot because we're really idolatrous here and we need to repent often of this. And we're gonna, you're going to sing. I don't want you to lie when you sing. Burn my idols down. Burn them down. Make a bonfire out of the splinters of my broken gods is what that song essentially is saying. And as we partake today and as we take of the meal, I don't want you to, to partake of this meal that, by the way, is the most generous gift you'll ever get in your life. Can I say that again? This is the most generous gift you'll ever get in your life. Jesus gave his life for you. Died in your place for your sins and your eternal comfort. You can be comfortable. Most of us will have to wait until heaven. And so I want you to come, and I don't want you to just take this lightly today. I want you to come And I want you to remember of the sacrifice and the generosity of your God. And you take of this meal and you say, praise the Lord, I I worship a generous God who doesn't demand anything of me, but, but actually 
established and gave me everything. And so now is the response time. Yes, we pass out the offering plate because yes, money is needed to do ministry, but we don't want you to now give all of a sudden all your money. I want you to think about what's going to change in your lifestyle. And how, how do you need to repent of being a greedy Christian, a greedy person, and let Jesus change your generous heart? But I want you to be able to sing about how generous Jesus is, and then we'll close.